This morning's uh, sermon title, as you probably have seen on the screen as well as on uh, the back of the worship guide, is Restore Us, O God. And there'll be some places on the sermon notes here uh, that you can jot down any thoughts as we move through the text this morning. And when I grew up, I grew up in East Texas. I grew up uh, in a Southern Baptist church. And if you know much about Baptist churches or a lot of churches in the South, especially back in the day, I'm 50 years old, so back in the day, revival services were a big deal. I don't know whether you were a part of them or not, but we at our church typically would have two revival services a year. Uh, we would have a week long or a few days, two times a year. And, th- and then also growing up in that era uh, was uh, the, 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 the life and times of, of Billy Graham. And he would do evangelistic crusades and other evangelists that did the same thing. Now, what I'm not saying is that revival services or evangelistic crusades are wrong, but what I am saying is all too often we associated God reviving his church with an event, with a worship service, when in reality there is so much more involved with this idea of being revived by God. The reason I bring that up is because Psalm 80 talks about being revived by God. Perhaps you know this name, perhaps you don't. It's a big name. His name is D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He was a pastor in Great Britain in the, uh, in the 1900s. And just a legendary pastor. He was a Presbyterian minister and, and very involved in evangelism. But here's what he said about re- evangelism and genuine revival. He says, when the church is weak, sinful, and apathetic, Rather than humbling ourselves and crying out to God, we organize an evangelistic crusade. Genuine revival, however, cannot be accomplished by our energy and our technique. It is God's alone to give. Thus, here's what he says about what revival is. Thus, in our crisis, we must call out to the Lord. And then he quotes some of what we're going to read in Psalm 80. Restore us. Cause your face to shine. Send the power. Send the Spirit. Manifest the glory and we shall be saved. Our nation, our world is in desperate need for revival, would you not say? It is in desperate need for revival. But if we're not careful, what we will say is our world, our nation needs revival. And by extension, what I mean by that is I'm pretty good with God. It's the others that need to be revived. So my question to us this morning is, are we as followers of Jesus, are we as a church family ready to acknowledge and see the need for ourselves as individuals and we collectively as a church family that we have a need to be restored or to be revived? I believe the answer is a resounding yes. I believe that God has things he's wanting to do in and through our midst, but until we see our need for him, until we cry out to him, until we ask for God's help in the midst of our brokenness, until we say, God, would you restore us, we miss out on the blessings that he wants to bring to us. So the challenge I have for us this morning 
is that we would not read this text and think, well, the psalmist and the nation of Israel needed to be revived and our country needs to be revived. Rather, as we read it, would we say, where do I fit in this? Where does our church family fit in, this, in within this? And how can we and how should we call out to God for his help and for his guidance? So turn with me to Psalm 80. We'll read all 19 verses, and here's what it says. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock. You who are, are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth. Before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, that's three of the tribes of Israel. Before these three tribes, stir up your might and come to save us. And then in verse 3, he shares the refrain, which he'll list two more times. Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. You make us an object of contention for our neighbors. And our enemies laugh among themselves. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and you plant, planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade. The mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. Why then? Have you broken down its walls, so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it, and all, the, and all that move in the field feed on it. Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stock that, you, that your right hand planted, and for the son whom you made strong for yourself. They have burned it with fire. They have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man, whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life and we will call upon your name. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. Now as I was walking through the Psalms, thinking about which Psalms we should cover, I came to Psalm 80 and felt like we should look at this one because this is one of the songs of lament, L-A-M-E-N-T. I don't know if you're familiar with that word or not, but this is a, a corporate or, or, or congregation-wide psalm of lament. There are several psalms that are similar to this. This is one of them. And a lament is simply any time that we have a song or a poem or words of mourning or sorrow. And so as we read Psalm 80, you probably heard him mourning a few things. You probably heard him being sorrowful about a few things. You probably heard him crying out to God. But here's the deal. A song of lament is not simply a Debbie Downer psalm where everything is, is down and gloom and doom. But rather, it's a sense of acknowledging a need to, to repent of sin, an acknowledgement of difficulty that we're facing, and yet it points directly to trusting in God. And so in this psalm, it, he's lamenting things that are happening, but he's along the way trusting in God. Now, with the psalms, sometimes it can be hard to know when each individual psalm was written. 
because it's a collection of 150 psalms, and they stand alone. They don't really connect necessarily. There are a few that kind of connect, but it's not a continual story. And so sometimes we're not really definite about when each particular psalm was written. And we don't know exactly the timeline of this, but it's very likely that this psalm, this corporate lament that I just read, was written in the southern kingdom, which is called Judah. Whenever God established his people, there was a nation called Israel, but because of politics and and dispute over who should be the king and things like that, the nation of Israel actually split into a divided kingdom. Perhaps you're familiar with that. There's the southern kingdom, which is Judah, which is headquartered in Jerusalem. There's the northern kingdom, which is referred to as Israel. It's headquartered in Samaria. And perhaps this psalm is being written in Jerusalem, in the southern kingdom, as they look towards the northern kingdom and the reality of the fact that the nation of Assyria is attacking Jerusalem. I'm sorry, uh, 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 Israel, the northern kingdom. And this is written as he's observing what's happening to Israel and he's saddened by what's happening to Israel and he's saying that he doesn't want the same thing to happen to Judah. So here's the time frame. In the year 722 B.C., Assyria conquered the northern kingdom. So this was probably written a few years before 722. However, only 150 years later, actually less than 150 years later, in the year 586, Babylon conquered Jerusalem. So it's in this context of attacks from the outside that they're acknowledging this is not good, sin has brought us to this point, and how can we call on God for his help and his guidance? Now, I want us to look real quickly at the refrain. It's found in verses 3, 7, and 19. And you'll see the wording is exactly the same with one minor but important change with each of those. Let's read verse 3 again, and then we'll talk about the content of that refrain because it actually sets the theme for the entire chapter of Psalm 80. Here's what it says. Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. He's acknowledging there's a need to be restored to God. He's acknowledging there's a need to turn back to God. He's acknowledging a need for them to repent of their sins and to say restore us means to put us back in right relationship with you, God. As we walk through this, we're going to see that he acknowledges the sin that they have committed. And because of their sin, they're needing to be restored to God. And then he cries out for God's presence. Look, he says, he says in verse 3, he says, let your face shine. This idea of God's face shining on them means, God, may we sense your presence. May we bask in your presence. May we see you for who you are. May we not just worship you or talk about you or think about you, but may we sit in your presence and may we acknowledge your presence and may we sense the fact that you are with us. It's crying out for his presence and crying out for his salvation, as we see at the end of verse 3, that we may be saved. With each of the refrains, he says the same thing. Restore us. Let your face shine on us. May we be saved. But it's interesting that with each of these three, he adds a title to God. And so the wording of who he's calling out to is the same one true God. He just gives another modifier or an explanation of who God is. 
especially in the Hebrew, which would have been the Old Testament times. In the Hebrew, there would be multiple names for God, the one true God, but that would describe various aspects of his character. And so let's look at this together. In verse 3, he calls out to God. But then he raises it up in verse 7. He says the exact same words, but he refers to him, O God of hosts. Last week we talked about this idea of God of hosts. It carries with it this military, warrior, conquering king. That, that he is in charge of the heavenly host. That he is in charge of everything. That he is large, in charge, and victorious. And so he's calling on the victorious king to restore them. And then in verse 19, he adds the word Lord. He says, O Lord God of hosts. That word Lord there is perhaps the word you've heard before, Yahweh. It's God, the holy, most reverent name for God. So he's acknowledging, God, we need your help. We need to be restored. We need to be revived. And we cannot do it on our own. We're trusting in you. It's clear that he's trusting the sovereign God alone for help. It's reminiscent of, a, of, of, of another uh, set of verses. You may want to flip over to Numbers chapter 6. In Numbers chapter 6, um, if I can turn in, in my Bible, Numbers chapter 6, we see a blessing that God um, is giving to his people. Uh, and we find it in Numbers chapter 6, beginning in verse 22 through 27. It says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and to his sons, the priests, and say this to them. Thus you shall bless the people of Israel, you shall say to them. And you'll see that these, this phrase is similar to what we see in the refrain. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face, there it is, make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. There is peace, there is comfort, there is joy, there is security in the presence of God. And in this refrain, in Psalm 80, he's calling for God's presence to be ever real to them. So in Psalm 80, we see that he is calling out for God's help. Let's look at some of the verses. We're not going to read each of them, but each of these verses, I kind of will summarize them. Verses 1 and 2, you may want to look there in your text. Verses 1 and 2, we see that he's desperately crying out to God. He's the shepherd of Israel. He's the one that will rescue his people. In those verses, it refers to God being seated upon the cherubim. He's enthroned upon them. It's a picture of the Ark of the Covenant in the temple where the cherubim are on the Ark of the Covenant. That's where God resides. He's saying, God, you are on your throne, and because you're on your throne, you can bring us safety and salvation. You'll use your might to do that. And then verses 4 through 6. He laments the anger of God. He says, God, we're praying out to you, and yet you're angry with us because of our sin. And we have a steady diet of tears. We're crying to you, God, and all we can do is to cry out for help. It's a steady diet of tears. He's saying we're being ridiculed by our enemies. He's acknowledging their sin, and he's acknowledging the consequences of the sin, and he's lamenting what they're going through. And then verses 8 through 13 it's interesting, he begins to talk about Israel being a vine and that God is the vine dresser. You may want to jot this down, we're not going to read it, but Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. Isaiah 5, 1 through 7 is very similar to the text that we see here as it describes that Israel is a vine that God has provided for and, and, and that 
sin has entered into the equation. As you read through verses 8 through 13, you're going to see that God brought his vine, the people of Israel, out of Egypt, which is the Exodus. He says that he drove the nations out, which is the conquest of the Holy Land, that he prepared the land for them. It says that they were from the Mediterranean Sea to the Euphrates River. It says that he prospered them. It says that the mountains and the cedars were shaded by the vine. Now think for just a minute. Have you ever seen a grapevine before? They don't provide shade. They're not these big, blossoming, huge trees. They're pretty low to the ground. There's no way that a vine is going to bring shade to a mountain. There's definitely no way that a vine is going to bring shade to a mighty cedar, but rather he's using uh, this figurative language to say that God has prospered the nation of Israel in an incredible kind of way. And then at the end of verses 12 and 13, we see, but God had allowed the wall of protection to be broken down because of the sin that was going on in their lives. And then in verses 14 through 17, he says, God, would you look down from heaven? Would you look down from heaven and bring nurture and care for your vine? And then I want us to see some wording in verse 17. In verse 17, he says, let your hand be on the man on your right hand. The son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Who is this man on his right hand? Who is this son of man? Well, when the psalmist wrote it, he'd be thinking about the king, the king that's in the Davidic line, that this is God's right-hand man, and God, would you strengthen your king to help him lead us through this difficult time? But you also see the words son of man. And if you know much about Jesus, you know that he calls himself the son of man over and over again. And so this is actually pointing to the one true king, Jesus Christ himself, who would bring ultimate salvation and rescue. So here's the deal. In this psalm, we see that because of their sin, they're crying out to God for help, and God responds. I don't want us to just walk away and go, okay, that's the Bible lesson. Like, that's what happened back then uh, over 2,000, almost 3,000 years ago. Rather, we see a pattern that's here, and now I want us to see how we, you and I, individually and corporately as a church, how we can cry out to God and say, God, would you restore us? And that's where your sermon notes fit in. What are the kind of the four things, not that it's an exhaustive list, but what are four things that we can and should do do to experience revival or restoration? The first one there on your note says this, see the need to be revived. In verse 4, he says, God, you're angry with us. Like, we're praying, but you're not seemingly listening to us. He knows God's listening, but it feels like God's not listening. Instead, you are angry with us. This word angry in the Hebrew carries with it the idea of not just of anger, but this idea of smoke or being furious or wrathful or smoldering. Their sin has caused God to become angry at their actions. They've sinned against God. They've strayed from God. They've worshipped false gods. They've disobeyed his commands, and God is angry. They have drifted from God. The psalmist sees it, and he knows they need to be revived. And so he says, God, would you restore us? And then in verse 4, he also says, God, how long? How long will this last? He's not making excuses for their sin. He's not saying, God, we did nothing wrong. Why is this happening? Rather, he's saying, we are sinners. You are angry with us. And how long is this going to last? Because we need help. 
We need to be revived. We need to be restored. So I started by asking you, can we acknowledge as individual followers of Jesus, can we acknowledge as a church family that we likewise need to be revived? Can we acknowledge that we need to be restored? I don't know about you, but I need the presence of God. I need his face shining upon me. I need his face shining upon our congregation, not for our sake, not for our benefit, but for his glory, that we might be the kind of church that he's calling us to be. So my question is, are we acknowledging that? Or are we saying, you know what, I've got it pretty much together. It's the others that have a problem. So what are some things that you and I need to see in our lives? If we're going to see the need for revival, here's some things that we might need to acknowledge. What obvious sin is in your life that you're trying to ignore or downplay? It could be an addiction could be an ongoing sin. What sin is in your life? Now, as I think about sin, here's some possibility. Is it possible that you are apathetic or indifferent towards things of God? Oh, I'm a good person. I'm a good moral person. But am I truly, genuinely longing to be in relationship with Jesus Christ and allow him to invade my life? What are some ways that perhaps we're indifferent? I want you to hear me say this is not intended to come hard, down hard on anybody. It's just for you to evaluate your life. If you're a member of our church family and your health and your life circumstances allow for you the opportunity to do these things, and you're not doing them, then perhaps you're apathetic and indifferent towards the things of God, and perhaps that's where you need revival. My question is this. If this is your church family, are you serving in this church body? Are you looking for people to connect with and serve with? Are, are you looking for community? Are, are you plugged into a hope group? Are you giving financially to the ministries that take place in this church family? Are you giving generously and sacrificially? Are you, are you seeking to build new relationships with people? Later this morning, we'll introduce some of our newer church members, and my question will be, have you met them? Do you know them? Have you extended an, an invitation to your house for dinner or, or to go out to eat? My thought process is this, that all too often, if we're not careful, we get in a routine of, I'm a good person, and a good person comes to church every Sunday, and we sit in our chair, and we sing, and we talk to a few people, and we walk out the door, but the reality is my life is not really any different because of my interaction with God's people in his house and in my own daily life as I'm seeking to serve and follow him. Are you indifferent or apathetic? towards things of God. Right along the same line, could it be we need to be revived from laziness? I, I know that one thing, and I, I've quoted a few people that have used that word about themselves, okay? I know that whenever we hit COVID and we had churches shut down or, or changed, we started watch, worshiping online and all of those things. I've had some church members say, hey, Alan, like, I wish we didn't have the online streaming because it's just so easy for me to stay lazy and be at the house and worship from the house, when in reality, I know I need to be in the building and with God's people. 
My question is, are you perhaps lazy, not just about church attendance, but other things where you're not truly committed to God or to his church? We've become apathetic even towards our commitment to one another. Perhaps we're prioritizing the wrong things. Perhaps we're prioritizing the wrong things in our own life and in our own church family, and at times that causes us to be distracted from the mission. What is the mission? God has called us, Jesus himself has called us to be a disciple who makes disciples who makes disciples. And if we get caught up on anything else that distracts us from that task, then it may be a good thing, but it's not the right priority. Perhaps we need to be revived in what our intentions are for our own lives and for the life of our church body. And then one other thing that I want to mention that goes right along those lines is selfishness or self-centeredness or pride where I make church and God all about me. I don't know how you need to be revived, but my question for you this morning is in what way do you personally need to be revived or restored? So the first step we see is acknowledging our need. The second one is listed on your notes, pray with faith and fervency. I know fervency is not a word we use real often, so let me describe what I mean by the word fervent. Earnest, urgent, unrelenting, bold. Whenever we see the words of this psalmist praying to God in in response to his need to be revived, we see him praying fervently and confidently because of his faith in the Lord. Look at some of the things he says. Verse 1, he calls out to God with great boldness and says, Give ear, O Lord. It's the idea he's like telling God, pay attention to us, listen to us, look at us, come to save us. There's boldness, urgency, intensity there. Verse 3, and in 7, and in 19, when he says, let your face shine, he's saying, may we experience your presence again. Verse 4, I've already referenced this. He says, how long will you be angry? This is a bold petition. He's not accusing God of anything, but he is saying, God, when will you relent? Just forgive us and let us move on and restore us. There's fervency and faith in his prayer. Then look down in verse 14. Here's what verse 14 says, turn again, O God of hosts, look down from heaven and see, have regard for this vine. All four of those phrases are bold and filled with faith. He calls out to God and he knows that God will answer. He says, God, look at us, turn again to us, look down from heaven, see us and regard us and nurture us and care for us. And then in verse 17, He acknowledges that God's man, he calls him the son of man, would bring the salvation they needed. And for us that are on this side of the cross, we know that this is Jesus he's pointing towards. And so the reality is this, that we can have ultimate faith and confidence that God will answer our prayers because of what the Lord Jesus Christ has done on our behalf. And then in verse 18, he pleads with God that God would give them life. All of these things show a boldness and a hopeful expectation that God will answer. So my question for us is this. Is your prayer life filled with faith and fervency? 
You're like, I don't really think it is. I mean, my prayer life involves God bless this food we're about to eat, and that's about all my prayer life involve, is involved with. Well, then we need to press in with prayer. And if you are pressing in with, with prayer, are you praying confidently, boldly, not because of a, who you are, but because of who Jesus Christ is? We should pray fervently and with faith. The psalmist knows that his prayer is being answered because of who God is, not because of who he is. Right along those lines, you'll see the third thing on your notes, and that says repent of sin. I've already acknowledged that the psalmist talks about sin and how we should repent of sin. And the reality that he sees a need to be revived is an acknowledgement of sin. The fact that he's praying with faith and fervency points to the fact that he's repenting of his sin. But I just want to say this out loud because if we're not careful, we'll skip right past it. And you'll go, yeah, we're supposed to pray with boldness and with faith. And so I'm going to ask God for this, 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 and this. And I'm going to do it with boldness, but I'm going to completely overlook the fact that I need to repent of sin. But what God says is that we must repent of our sin. And we see the psalmist acknowledges this, the refrain, three different times. He says, restore us, O God. If he didn't have sin, he wouldn't need to be restored. So his acknowledgement that he needs to be restored is an acknowledgement of his sin, which is an acknowledgement that he's repenting of that sin. All too often, we ask for forgiveness of our sin but we don't acknowledge the need to repent of the sin. What might be the difference of that? Like, if I just simply say forgiveness of sin, if I'm not careful, I can just say, God, I don't want the consequences. Like, he's saying, God, how long will you be angry? Well, then forgive my sin so you're no longer angry. No, no, repentance means, God, you are rightfully angry with us, and I want those sins to be forgiven, and I don't want to go down that path again. So repentance of sin involves allowing God to do his work in you so that you're no longer walking in that sin, you're walking in the other direction. So my question is, are we willing and, and actively repenting of our sin? Whenever the psalmist says, restore us, O God, it's less about God restoring the nation of Israel back to its political power, and it's more about restoring us spiritually speaking. The word restore here means to return or to turn back to God or to repent. So his very word selection, restore us, indicates that he's repenting of his sin and the sin of his people. Then look down at verse 14. We looked at that a moment ago. He calls on God and says, turn again. Actually, God turning again is the same word as restoring because what he's saying is to be restored, we have to turn from our sin. And if we turn from our sin, then God, you can turn back to us. So he's saying turn back to us, God, because we're repenting of our sin. And we know that if we repent of our sin, then we're put back in right, play, uh, right, uh, uh, right position with you once again, God. And then verse 18. After basically everything has been said he finishes verse 18 he says then we shall not turn back from you so that phrase itself points to the fact that he acknowledges that in the past they have turned away from God so he's th th this psalm even though the word I repent is not printed here over and over and over again there's a posture of acknowledgement of sin and, and repenting of that sin so then whenever he prays 
He's able to pray with fervency and faith. Whenever he prays, he does so because he knows he needs to be revived because he has sin in his life. It's interesting, I mentioned at the front end, revival services. I don't know what experience you have had with revival services, but here is the experience I've had with revival services. Revival services have been less about revival and more about evangelism, which is not a wrong thing. I'm just saying we've mis- it's a misnomer. If a person doesn't know Jesus, they can't be revived. A person has to already know Jesus to be revived. And so the reality is revival in its true definition is a person who already knows Jesus, but somehow, some way has kind of fallen asleep or kind of become apathetic. And God shakes us and wakes us up and says, it's time to get serious about your faith. And my question for us today is, what sin is in our life that is impacting us in such a way that we need to be revived because we're not awake to what God is doing in our lives because sin is in the way now don't get me wrong if you've trusted in Jesus as your Lord and Savior all your sin has been forgiven he's not holding a sin against you you can't lose your salvation but the reality is this if I'm a follower of Jesus and I choose to put a blockade between me and God that's sin and I don't repent of that sin then that sin is going to be a barrier to what God wants to do in my life so my question is what sin do you need to repent of today? And then we see the final thing that I have on your notes, and that is stay faithful to him. Stay faithful to God. In order for us to be revived, we need to see a need to be revived. In order for us to be revived, we've got to pray with fervency and faith. In order for us to be revived, we've got to repent of our sin. But once we repent of our sin, we're being called to then live a life that is faithful to God. I mean, who wants to constantly go through revival sin, revival sin, revival sin, revival sin, over and over and over again? Again, I'll tell about my history. Maybe you can relate to this, maybe you can't. During the altar call, time after time after time again, we would come forward and we would rededicate our lives to Jesus. Have you heard that phrase before? I'm not making light of it. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. But the question is, if 52 times a year I'm rededicating my life to Jesus, was I ever really truly dedicated to him in the first place? Or was I truly sincere when I repented of my sin? When I say stay faithful to him, I'm not saying we're going to walk out and live a perfect life. I'm not saying we're going to walk out and never sin again. But I am going to say that if we've truly been revived by the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Lord of hosts, then we're not going to walk out in the depth of our sin, wallowing around in our sin. Rather, when we see sin, we're going to attack it right away and repent of it and ask God to forgive us of our sin. So my question is not just do you want to feel better, not just do you want to boost, not do you just want to get on an emotional, spiritual high. I'm saying do you really want to love Jesus and follow him? Then therefore we need to repent of our sin, turn from it, and walk in faithfulness. One of the big reasons that God calls us to be active in the life of a local church is because you and I, on our own, are probably not going to walk in faithfulness. But whenever I've got the Holy Spirit living in me and I'm living life with other followers of Jesus and there's accountability and there's conversations and there's love and there's nurturing and there's challenging and there's prayer, then I'm more likely to walk faithful with the Lord, am I not? I think one of the biggest reasons 
why the church and our church has struggled over the last two years is because for various reasons with COVID we have been isolated, we've drawn back from community, we've not leaned in with all that we have, we've reserved something back and as a result of that in our own flesh we have been filled with sin and we are not following the Lord Jesus like we should. So my question is what are we going to do to seek to stay faithful to him? You see, true revival and restoration leads us to a life that's fully committed to living out the covenant that God has made with us. Look down in verse 18. He says, based on repentance of sin, based on the fact that God will forgive sin, he says then in verse 18, then, this is what happens, then we shall not turn back from you, we talked about that a moment ago, give us life and we will call upon your name. What the psalmist is saying is this, God, I want to be revived, and I want a revived life, and when I have that life that I'm going to understand that involves at least two things. One, we won't turn back from you. We won't stray from you again. We're not going to be perfect, but we're going to go the right direction. And then the other one says, we will call upon your name. You see, the proper response to being restored by God, the proper response to revival is that we would worship God. God. To worship God is not just what we do on Sunday mornings. To worship God is not just what we do when we sing a song. To worship God involves many things. It involves our financial giving. It involves our discipleship process. It involves serving. It involves community life. It involves being a faithful member of this local body. It involves reading our scripture. It involves prayer. It involves many different things, not just singing a song on Sunday morning or listening to worship music during the course of the week. Rather, our lives should be lived as an act of worship to God. He says, as a result of revival, we will worship your name. You see, the true Christian life involves worship, faithfulness, loyalty to the Lord, covenant commitment, obedience, all of these things. And my question for us this morning is, are you willing to commit to not turn back from him again? Because if you're not willing to commit, I'm not going to turn back from you again. It's not true revival. It's just kind of resuscitation for the moment, and then I'm going to go back to sleep in the next week or two because I'm not really fully revived. So I looked at this text this week. I've realized, in my estimation, from leadership on down that there is a sincere need not that we're a horrible despicable place not that we're filled with sin that uh, is just horribly dangerous but the reality is if we're not careful we as a church family can be lulled into sleep and kind of look like a good church on the outside but the reality is we're not allowing the holy spirit to do his work on the depths of who we are and the reason is because of sin and apathy and self-centeredness and 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 things and so i just want to encourage us this morning would we do a few things would we lament in the areas that need to be lamented would we repent of sin that needs to be repented would we be prayer warriors that are praying faithfully and fervently and would we walk out taking action to love jesus and to follow him this week I kind of researched a phrase I'd heard before, and when I researched it, I saw that Anne Graham Lott, who is uh, um, 
Bill, Billy Graham's daughter is said to have said this. And then I kept researching, and I saw no, and Graham Lott was not the first one who said it. It was actually a guy by the name of Gypsy Smith, who was a, a British evangelist back in the day. And then I realized, I don't know who originally said it, and it's not all that important, but it's the concept. And here's what it says. Typically, uh, basically, draw a circle around yourself. And if you want to know where revival starts, it starts inside that circle. Like we can say, I want our country to be revived. I want our, our, our world to be revived. We need Jesus in our nation. But the reality is, if I'm not allowing him to be the Lord of my life within this circle, then it's not really going to matter, right? Now, I'm not saying draw a little circle, stay away from other Christians, let Jesus do his thing here in the circle and be a happy little Christian. No, I'm just figuratively saying, where does revival start? It starts with me. So perhaps this morning, God's trying to get your attention. Are you ready for revival? Do you want to see God do incredible things in and through our church family? My question is then, will you be willing to allow him to start that work in you? And perhaps this morning, in just a moment, around this altar, you'll need to come and pray or come pray with me. Or maybe on the back of your connection card, you need to jot something down. But here are some possibilities. Maybe you need to lament a sin. Maybe you need to lament what used to be. But Alan, I've been at this church for 20 years, and it's not like it used to be. I wish it was back like it used to be. I wish we could have this or that, or I wish this family was here. The reality is this. If we're not careful, we're looking in the back, and we're not looking forward to what God wants to do, and we're completely missing it. And at the same time, there's genuine pain and hurt that perhaps is being experienced because things aren't like they used to be. And maybe we just need to lament that together, grieve it, mourn over it, and ask God to do his work in us. Maybe we need to lament sin that's in our lives. Maybe we need to pray more fervently with faith-filled prayers, asking for restoration and revival for us and for our church. Maybe we just need to pray that God would give us the action and the ability to live out what we're saying we believe, and that is be a disciple, make disciples, be the church of the glory of God. But my question is, in my life, is that just a little mantra that I'm using, or am I really wanting to live it out? Is that just a neat little catchphrase and we know it's a biblical concept or is it resonating to the depths of who we are? If it is, then we're acknowledging, God, we need you to revive us so we can be the disciple you're calling us to be. God, we need you to revive us so that we can live out our faith in such a way that we can help make disciples of other, uh, of other people who then can go out and make disciples. God, we need you to revive us so we can press in, lean in, commit to this church family that, that we may love each other again and serve one another and do life together and financially support what we're doing here that all of it would be to the glory of God last week I shared something I'm going to share it again this week and that is in the school year I know that our hope groups are still meeting now and I know some of them are meeting periodically but during the summer there's kind of a little bit of a lull with our hope groups and that's intentional because summer is busy and vacation and people have things going on. But in the fall, when our hope groups start back again, I'm asking that if you're a member of this church family, that you will not wonder if you should sign up for a hope group, but that you just sign up for a hope group. Not for legalistic reasons, not because you're a bad person if you don't, but because we need each other. We need each other, right? Right? 
And the joy of a hope group is it allows us to be in close proximity with each other. And I think that if we would be in close proximity with each other, as we're all individually seeking the Lord, that we'll experience this revival and this restoration that I think God so desperately wants to bring to his people. I'm going to lead us in prayer. At the end of the prayer, we'll stand, we'll sing. There'll be some guys that are passing some offering plates. Feel free to drop something in there if you'd like to, financially, your connection card, anything like that. That's an act of worship. That's an act of response. This altar will be open. I don't know what God wants to do, but I think it'd be a shame if we walked out of this room and none of us lamented of anything. None of us repented of sin. None of us prayed fervently, and we just kind of ho-hummed, walked back out of this place. What's God calling us to do this morning? And would we say yes to him? Let me pray.